That's her about Burton the Tijuana Brass. I'm Meg Rowley, and on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, I welcome Fangraphs writer Craig Edwards to the program. Craig and I discuss the growing labor tension between team owners and players, MLB's claim that a season of fanless games will result in $4 billion in losses, the move to shorten the amateur draft, and the discourse surrounding it all. Plus, Craig briefly puts his lawyer hat back on to assess the so-called smoking gun email, and we recall the 2011 World Series. All of that is coming up, but first it is my obligation to tell you that Fangraphs memberships are now available at Fangraphs.com. For the monthly cost of the Father's Day card you still have time to forget to purchase, you can support all the great work at Fangraphs, including Craig's excellent analysis of the league's various resumption of play plans, play plans, hard to say friends, play plans, Jay Jaffe's KBO coverage, Rachel McDaniel's exploration of players gone missing, Eric Long and Hagen's top prospect lists, and Dan Zimborski's Zips Time Warps. You may also, for a slightly greater sum, purchase an ad-free membership, either for yourself or as a gift to someone else, and enjoy Fangraphs without banner ads, facilitating faster loading times. It really is the best way to support and experience the site. That bit of business being complete, I take you to my conversation with Craig Edwards, writer for Fangraphs, which begins right now. I have started recording. Craig, we had to reschedule this a couple of times because of busyness and silliness, which seems surprising probably to people given uh, the state of affairs, what with there being no baseball, but I'm glad that you were able to hop on today and accommodate my doofy editorial schedule. So thanks so much. Yeah, you know, schedules are hard to match up sometimes. They can be. They can be. Craig, how have you found your work at home time since we've entered quarantine? I found work at home time before quarantine a lot easier. Yeah, man. You know, it's hard. You know, there are harder things, but, you know, among the things that I am dealing with, right, working at home is it's rather difficult. You know, my wife is also now working at home and we have a almost 16 month old uh, baby to take care of amongst ourselves between the the two jobs and so you know I once had an office to myself and now I'm sharing said office and then you know we we've got a a basement where Eleanor usually plays and then that got flooded on Sunday and so you know that adds some difficulty and decreases the amount of living space you have considerably. Yeah, it is a strange time to do sort of uh, difficulties accounting because we are both in a relatively lucky spot compared to many other people. But, you know, the difficulties you have are the ones you have, and you still have to navigate them. Them being better than others just doesn't make them a thing that you can just not navigate. So it's an odd time. It's a weird time to be alive. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, one of the things that has made it weird is the lack of baseball. And also the potential return to baseball. I will say, Craig, I know that things have been tricky for you in terms of childcare. You still have uh, produced objectively good work for Fangraphs. uh, And probably when you factor in, when you COVID adjust it, really excellent work. So that's that's a thing that you can say, confidently at least. I subjectively will go ahead and agree with you, I guess. (laughs) And one of the things that has occupied 
a great deal of your work over the last little bit and has occupied all of our work over the last little bit has been the numerous attempts and plans, some seemingly uh, less serious and sort of draft and others that are proving to be uh, quite serious and probably actionable on the league's part to try to resume play. Do we say resume play or do we say start play? I have struggled with this editorially because we never really did, you know, we didn't start the season. We had spring training. Are we resuming play or are we starting play for the first time in 2020? I think you're resuming play. You're starting the season. Sure. Okay. We'll go with that. So the plans to resume play. And those have taken on a variety of of details and sort of challenges, some of which might end up apart from the the health considerations actually might end up mattering a great deal more in terms of how likely we are to see a 2020 season, even an abridged one. And so I thought it would be good for you and I to go through some of the details of this. We are recording this on Thursday. As we are recording it, drips and drabs of the union's response to the health and safety portions of the league's proposal are starting to to leak out. Uh, so listeners should bear in mind that we haven't seen the full union response yet as they're listening to this probably on Friday. But I think, you know, the first thing for us to remember is that back in March, the union and the league reached an agreement that addressed a number of things like the uh, issue of service time and the draft and what we thought was the question of player compensation for 2020. And then the league and the owners, I guess more precisely, have tried to ask for further reductions in pay with the likelihood that games, at least regular season games this year, will be played without fans in attendance. And you've written about what the union's response to that ought to be and sort of how we ought to think about that. And, and Craig, I thought your headline was a good one. After years of profits, MLB owners ask players to subsidize potential losses. So what are they what are they asking of the players here, Craig? Well, I, I think that, you know, it's what's interesting is that so there was a week and a half ago, I guess it was now, that the owners supposedly approved a a proposal to do a fifty fifty split and we're now ten days away and there has apparently been no such actual proposal, which maybe tells you a little bit about how confident they are that it was a a good proposal, but I, I think that you know, when you put out something like a 50-50 split, it sounds it sounds fair. You know, right. it sounds like, well, you get 50, I get 50, we both get get equal things. But, you know, in actuality, when it's like there are good things happening and we get we get everything that happens when it's good and then when it's bad, that's when we do the 50-50 split. That's right. that's not that's not exactly you know, I don't know if you want to use the term fair, but it's not like a, it's not a good bargain if you've been going through this where the other person is taking on, they're supposedly, the owners are taking on this risk that, you know, they're in the business and the, the business could go bad, you know, for several decades, there hasn't been really that much risk in baseball, but the supposed reason why the owners are entitled to the profits is because they're putting up this money and taking on the risk of, of losing this money. And over the past three years, I think that, you know, you can look at different estimates. Forbes had it at about, you know, $3.6 billion 
for the the th three seasons previous, and they don't include things like the two billion dollars uh, that teams got for for selling Bam Tech to Disney, and they don't include things like profits from owning a regional sports network, where teams generally they might take a little bit less money and annually in order to get a certain percentage of of the ownership of of that and that is also not included so i i think that if you're looking at the last you know three or so years you could make the argument that the owners have somewhere between you know five billion and eight billion dollars in profits above and beyond whatever they're spending right the owners on paper would disagree with you and say no we've never made more than 250 million dollars uh that's you know preposterous i don't see any clear reason to believe that particularly you know when we we've seen the braves books or at least a little bit of them right. and uh, they're an average team and they are turning a, a, a decent profit and if they're an average team turning a decent profit you have to think that all of the other teams you know are you know roughly in line with that with some doing more some doing less but i think that i guess getting back to what they're trying to propose is they're saying well we made all of this money and now we're about to lose some and we want you to to take on some of those losses and in the march agreement it seemed that the players had agreed to do some of that and said right. well we'll just We'll take a prorated share. However much of the season we play, you pay us for whatever you would normally pay us for that number of games. And then, uh, as as things sometimes do, word got out through the Wilpon family to the Governor Cuomo to the Governor's brother Cuomo <laughs> on CNN that they were going to need to redo the deal. And then, you know, we get all sorts of leaks about, you know, this different contract language. And, you know, I, I think that, you know, there may be some argument that, you know, the deal isn't necessarily like there needs to be some discussions about how to work things out. And, and part of that is because the, those discussions, they assume a lack of safety because right. these are, we're talking about conditions to play baseball where there's not fans, that there's not exactly all of the health things that people would like to see before resuming normal society. And it, it certainly looks like the owners are trying to take advantage of that lack of safety and tell players to, to accept less money. And, and that's sort of a, a difficult, difficult thing to swallow when yeah. you've got you know, years and years of profits, and then you're about to maybe have losses. Right. And then you're saying, oh, no, we're we're in these losses together, but we're not in these profits together. Right. It's not as if, you know, when they sold Bam Tech to Disney, they came back to all the players and they said, good news, friends. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's, that, that's one of the, like, the crazier parts of, you know, I don't know, it's not like there's official numbers or whatever, but the numbers that get that get leaked out in terms of what the players' shares are every year, mm -hmm. or the players' share of of overall revenue, one of the more prominent figures generally takes off, you know, half a billion to a billion dollars every year in what the cent they call like central office costs for MLBAM and that sort of thing, and the logic behind that is that. 
Well, you've got the local revenue that stays with the team, and then you've got the national revenue, and then you've got this other national revenue, like from MLBAM, and that encompasses MLB TV, that sort of thing. But they they take out the costs because they say, well, that money doesn't go to the teams. You know, that money just goes to making this money, and then that money goes to the teams. So they only count the the, the profits on that part, except when they then then made two billion dollars in profits. It didn't get back included. It didn't get included back in, into those into right. those calculations. Right. But I guess that's that's a that's a different conversation than the one we're having right now. I find it interesting from a so you know there was this initial proposal that was approved by the owners, and then subsequent to that, and you wrote about this too. Subsequent to that, the league sat down with the players association and and gave them a financial presentation. And that presentation was leaked. And I think that, you know, given that these meetings have to take place over Zoom and conference call and what have you, we're just going to know all the stuff that is going back and forth between the the league and the union. But they presented to the union their sort of argument for why this revenue sharing agreement was necessary. And it echoed sort of similar to Rob Manfred's comments on CNN, this idea that without without fans in attendance for games, I should say, and no pay cut, that there would be $4 billion worth of losses for the teams this year. And you went through, Rob Means at Baseball Prospectus went through, a number of folks have gone through sort of the details that the Associated Press was able to glean from that presentation, which again was to the union. This was not I mean, I guess all communication is PR to a certain degree, but this was this was meant to be a substantial conversation used as part of negotiation for a labor agreement, right? It has a fundamentally different character than Rob Manfred going on CNN, right? And in that, there were some discrepancies, some of which were sort of basic differences in how you would present accounting terms, right? Like baseball projected an EBITDA of $143 million after stadium depreciation and non-cash addbacks, which is not how EBITDA works, right? That's earnings before depreciation. So there were issues like that. There were issues like you pointed out in your piece where despite the fact that amateur draft signing bonuses have been largely deferred into 2021 and 2022, the full value of those bonuses was included as an expense. So there was all this rigmarole that they were going through to arrive at this $4 billion number. And absent in all of that were these central earnings, central office earnings figures, right? So MLB TV, BAM, the national TV deals. And I find it curious, and I'm curious what you think of this. So they are, they're holding all of that stuff out to try to paint a picture of substantial losses on the season. And as you note in your piece, there are going to be individual teams that may well take losses this year. And the sort of magnitude of those losses, we don't yet know, but they, you know, they might lose a little bit of money this year, or potentially if you're the Marlins, for example, a substantial amount of money. But the real gem that they, I would imagine, are keen to preserve in all of this is the value of their national TV contracts, BAM, MLB TV, you know, it's not that the gate money means nothing, but there are lar- much larger sort of considerations that they are probably keen to protect. And I'm curious if they're going to, if you think they're going to find themselves in sort of an odd negotiating spot, because they've said to the players, if you don't take 
a further reduction in salary, it doesn't make sense for us to play the season from a financial perspective. And aren't they maybe setting up a scenario where the players, knowing that this is not the totality of their potential revenue for this year, say, okay, fine, we're going to take our $170 million that we agreed to up front, and we're just going to sit out and then dare them to say, well, actually, <laughs> about that TBS deal. About this ESPN money, this is the, here's this problem we have with MLB TV, right? Like, aren't they putting themselves in sort of a, a position where they're daring the union to sort of call their bluff? Yeah, I mean, and we don't know if they're sort of sort of anchoring their position where you start off with, you know, we're in dire straits here. But the problem is, is that when you're proposing a revenue sharing situation, which it, it seems like they are, you can't then yeah. say, well, actually, we don't have any revenue to share with you. Right. You, you can't say, well, we're losing everything, but please split it with us because that, that just, that's not, you're, you're encouraging them to, to not move, which, which sort of gets to, to your point. But the, the issue is, is that no matter how you splice or run the numbers, they lose more money if they do not play. And if you're encouraging them, if you're like sort of trying to push them to take a lesser deal and claim that you're going to lose money, yet you are setting yourself up to have to come back with some sort of other, I don't know, compromise or, you know, Mm -hmm. something that that looks a lot better if the players don't blink. And I don't know if they're going to come up with something that's a different revenue sharing or they're just going to ask the players for a discount or if they're you know just going to say hey we'd like to do expanded playoffs and we're we would like to keep that money cuz you know the playoffs is a big money maker television wise for for right. the owners but the the way the players make money from the playoffs is from attendance and if there's not attendance right. then the players are are themselves sacrificing a bunch of money that they would normally receive and i don't know the problem is is that it's a presentation that's just so false and so obviously false that it's hard to see what what the actual purpose of it is because when you just do some very simple math you come up with even use even giving them their numbers the benefit of the doubt and using their numbers they're not losing money per regular season game that they're playing, even if they don't even play the postseason. They they come out ahead. Now, a lot of teams maybe won't come out ahead, but that's the owners are free to figure that out amongst themselves. Right. You know, that's, but maybe that's a difficult conversation that the owners would rather not have. And it's a conversation that, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, the owners were forced into those difficult conversations about how to share revenue. And you had the the big market, big money teams upset with the small market teams and the small market teams upset with the, the big market teams. And, you know, honestly, that's that's a situation where the the players come off better in terms of a deal because the owners are, are distracted about, you know, how they're going to split up all this money. And the fact that there wasn't that in the last CBA was probably a clue that that MLB was going to to do very well in, in the last deal. And I think when you, I mean, when you look at 
so I mentioned the Braves. So the the last two seasons, the Braves have made $150 million in EBITDA. And according to MLB, they've made under $500 million total, which means somehow the Braves are responsible for 30% of the league's profits, which doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Yeah, it just doesn't. Like the Braves, there's nothing special about the Braves. I mean, they they're they're an average team with average attendance, average payroll, like, you know, they're not the Yankees or the Red Sox or or any of those teams that, you know, have some of the highest ticket prices in the league and have huge attendance. I mean, it 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 doesn't make sense just on its face the 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 numbers that that they're providing and and there's not much reason for for the players union or really anyone to to pay them too close of attention other than the fact that you, when you say 4 billion dollars that's a huge headline when you say they're losing 640,000 dollars a game that's a huge headline that's that's a pr battle that's not anything that's going to get you closer to to some sort of sort of negotiation and i think that when you look at what the deal is even if you say hey what did the landscape look like in march versus today that requires some change. And I think that there's an argument from the players that there isn't there isn't a change. Right. That everything that you knew now, that you know now, you knew then. But even right. if you're going to give them the benefit of the doubt and you say, well, here's $4 billion in gate revenue over the course of a regular season, they're not going to get. Well, you cut that in half, that's $2 billion. That we already knew about. And then you say... Right. Well, if we're coming off a pandemic, we're probably only going to get about half that. So that's $1 billion. So that's the, your maybe expected gate at the end of March. And all your stadium revenue is maybe $1 billion. So if you thought you were going to have fans back then and weren't thinking about the possibility of fanless games, you can say, well, from March to today, there's a billion dollars in losses. If you go by the $2.9 billion figure that MLB says is going to be their revenue this year, and you cut that in half, and it's a little over $1.4 billion, and you look at what they were going to pay the players, which was about $2.4 billion, you have a situation where you just asked the, you just asked the players to take that entire $1 billion loss on right. their own, and that just doesn't right. make any sense. Yeah, I find myself, it's interesting to think about this from a couple of different ways. There's the actual content of what the league is claiming and the owners are claiming. I find myself very interested in the way that it is, that those claims are being sort of interpreted and, and talked through publicly. I think that on the one hand, there is a group of sites and analysts that have done a very good job of sort of examining and interrogating those claims and finding them wanting where appropriate. I think there's some coverage that is a little believing in a way that could probably stand to have a dose of skepticism. I find the question of whether or not teams are going to lose money to be an interesting one from both of those camps because on the one hand, I think that you are your pieces were right to point out the places where the league and the owners are likely to just keep making money, even though they will make less money than they would in a normal season. I find the case of some teams where those losses might be pretty pronounced to be interesting because I think that they are, are rather telling in terms of how owners are, are thinking about what the other baseball, Craig, well, I guess there are three of you. There are so many Craigs, Craig. Uh-huh. 
there, and you're all good Craigs, to be clear, but there are a lot of you, um, what Craig Goldstein at Baseball Prospectus termed sort of a variation on one of your earlier headlines, which was, you know, privatizing gains and socializing losses. And, you know, I actually don't have a hard time believing that the Marlins, just given how highly leveraged that uh, ownership group seems to be, might lose a significant amount of money this year just in debt service. I don't have a hard time believing that the Rangers, who are getting ready to open this beautiful new ballpark and thus probably took on a substantial amount of debt in order to finance the construction of that ballpark, might be in a position where they're going to lose some money because they aren't going to be able to make up those sort of upfront expenses in gate receipts for yeah, the park. I mean, the Nationals just won a World Series, and like, even if, you know, they were going to experience a huge right. theoretical revenue bump because right. of the World Series just on attendance alone, and now right. they just don't get that. Right. And so I don't I don't have a hard time believing that there actually are going to be teams that that lose money on the year. But I think you're right that and I don't even really have a a problem. It's very easy to spend other people's money. I don't even really have a problem socializing losses. I just don't know why they would have to be socialized to the players. You know, they didn't approve the sale to this Marlins ownership group. Right. The the there are rules about debt ratio and debt service in the CBA. And they have been sort of lax and the league has been sort of lax in its enforcement around that stuff. So that sounds like while it's a bummer for them, like, you know, maybe the Dodgers have to write a check this year to help cover losses or what have you. Maybe the, the Marlins ownership group has to ask for further lines of credit. It should be easy for them. They have a charismatic spokesperson at the helm, you know, so you just go ask the bank. Well, I mean, there's there's a reason that baseball teams have been able to get all this debt, and right. it's because they're not only generating whatever you know, two hundred forty, two hundred fifty million dollars a year on ten billion in revenue. That's not banks don't operate that way. I mean, right. that the reason that they can get all this debt is because that baseball is a very very good industry to be in and yeah. maybe you know once you factor in all the debt that they're taking out then you know your so-called EBITDA or you know profits or operating income however you want to use it is a little bit less but that's because you got to take on all that debt right yeah I've been thinking about how to you know, we don't want to, we don't have like an axe to grind on, on this stuff, but I think that, you know, the, the way that we as an industry approach the claims of ownership has just gotten more skeptical in a, in a way that I think is just good, you know, it's just good journalism. It's just good analysis to, to pick at these numbers and make sure that they make sense. We are a data-driven organization after all. But I've been trying to think about how to talk about the situation the players find themselves in in a way that is illuminating and I'll use that word rather than persuasive but illuminating for fans who are sort of predisposed to be to root for laundry without really thinking about it all that critically and I just look at teams that have a long time to recoup bad the losses of a bad year right like ownership turns over not infrequently but not super frequently and when it does you make a lot of money but you know they have time they have time to recover and you know players just don't 
they don't have the same number of years at their disposal to sort of find their way through to the payday that's supposed to set them up for life, especially given the control that teams have over them at the front ends of their careers. So I wonder if that would be compelling to people. I don't think that it would be. Yeah, I just don't I, know I, how th- much time just, you spend. There's no winning it. There's there's yeah. just there's no winning the sort of PR battle. And you know, I think you know, we don't hear as much about owners being this like but benevolent force in baseball and I think that that's good. But you know, you still hear the term like stewards of the game. Yeah. And it's pretty clear that what they're doing is not being they're not being good stewards of the game right now and it's it's an unfortunate situation to be in it's an unfortunate situation for everyone to be in but i don't think that when you're talking about millions of dollars you're just not going to find enough people to move you know public pressure you know to find the right sentiment to, to to back the players and that leaves the players with the option of just fighting for the best possible deal they can get. And, you know, it's, you know, we keep hearing the term, you know, it's, it's bad for baseball to have this, these public fights, these public fights are bad for baseball. They, they need to stop, but we don't really stop to think about like who exactly is engaging in, in these public fights. And if the public yeah. fights are so bad for baseball, why do the, why are the owners constantly leaking right. how much money they're about to lose? Why is, if, if the, if the public fight is bad for baseball, why is Rob Manfred going on CNN saying they're about to lose $4 billion? Yeah. I mean, the owners don't think these public fights are bad for them. That's why they're having them. Right. Yeah, it's it's been interesting to see the the dialogue around that and I find it, you know, I don't want to we're all just doing our best right now. I don't want to call out particular media members necessarily, but I I always find that that line to be really strange coming from national baseball writers, which is where it seems to echo from because on the one hand, like I think it is important to when you are writing and presenting you know, an argument, which is what analysis is, to understand where your readership is and where they're coming from and how their perspective is going to inform their understanding of your analysis, right? So the fact that so many people in this country are unemployed right now absolutely affects the way that they understand these kinds of labor questions. But also, you're a national baseball writer. Your job is to help inform that understanding. So go do, you know, go do your job. Like, your job is to help them understand who's leaking and why they're doing that and what position they're trying to sort of inculcate into fans' understanding of players and labor. So I'm always, like, a little – I'm like, did you just confess to being kind of bad at your job? (laughs) Is that that what you – not I don't have a specific person in mind. I don't. I might, but I'm not going to say who. People don't get to know that because I'm not going to be nasty on this podcast. But I always find that a little strange. I think that the place where I have identified ownership as perhaps not being the best stewards actually came in a different piece and that you wrote and surrounding a different question, which is around the amateur draft. I don't know if this is consistent with the conversations that you had with with folks who work for baseball teams, but when the draft 
specifics were finalized. It became very clear to me that a lot of ownership groups were, they weren't listening to their baseball people. You know, I think that sometimes analysts do a bad job of, of distinguishing between front office personnel and ownership. And sometimes the positions that those two groups would espouse overlap, right? And there's a reason that certain sort of profiles of baseball ops leadership are hired over and over again, right? Because they do a good job of executing the vision that ownership has. And often that vision involves less spending. So I don't mean to give a pass to front office folks entirely, but, you know, it's just like there wasn't a single scout or analyst or front office person I talked to who was like, this is a great thing. They're like, well, we get less talent now, you know? This was not in reference to a specific conversation I had, but like if you're the Dodgers or the Yankees and you're working for their player dev groups, you have to be furious, right? It's like, well, we do a lot with day three guys. We make big leaguers out of those dudes. Like this is a bummer. So, you know, when you're not listening to baseball people anymore, you've really lost the thread, I think. Yeah, I think that it's it's hard. I think it's it's, you know, for a lot of people right now, where it's one thing that you know you don't maybe get you you don't get to do your job because you know something you know happened and you something got screwed up or whatever but it's it's got to be incredibly frustrating to be really good at your job and then not be able to get to do it yeah and i i think that that's that's the case for a lot of these organizations and you know i think that we're not talking about like finding gems in the 33rd round i mean we're talking about just trying to find the 250th or 300th you know best right. best player available i mean that's that that those are some some fairly talented guys and the the players that are generally you know sort of they're not like the afterthought ros- you know roster fillers on minor league teams those are the guys that you know, if, you know, they have a, a decent month, they're going to end up on Eric's prospect list uh, right. the next spring. I mean, they're, they're players that can be contributors. And I found the, the ownership argument about being able to just get these players later, you know, just it's, it's not very compelling because there's always going to be a limited number of draft picks, particularly in this, you know, sixth round to 10th round or, you know, 15th round range. So you have to take as many of those picks as, as you can get. And I think that, you know, when, when you're talking about, you know, how valuable these picks have been in the past and, you know, the, the prospects of turning these players into, you know, an everyday major leaguer, then, you know, it's, it's a move that, you know, costs you more in the long run. And, and unfortunately it, it seems that, the, the owners are more interested in, in the short run and just the overall impact of potentially having a less talented workforce is, is never something that you should try for. And, and that's, right. that's what the situation is. And it's all over, you know, $30 million, you know, right. $1 million per, per team spread out over the next three years. Yeah. You know, I think about how many guys... Eric has in sort of that, you know, I think that the board right now for the draft goes up to, there's like 220 some odd guys on there. You know, there's a lot of 35 pluses on that list. And some of them 
will sign. Some of them will end up signing with teams for 20K because, you know, the sad fact of the matter is that they are going to feel economic pressure from their families too, where even though 20K is not what they are worth, it might look really good depending on what their personal financial situation is. But a lot of those guys are just going to go do other stuff. Some of them will go to college. Some of them will end up back in the draft, but a lot of them won't. And the result is a less good product. And you just think about like, I know that this does not matter to most fans, but I just, you know, I think about some of the folks I know who are like area scouts for teams. And some of these dudes, they've been scouting for years. And this was the year that those guys were going to become part of their organizations. And now that work just disappears into the ether. So it's really a bummer. Oh, Craig, this kind of a bummer, kind of a bummer episode. It's a bummer time. We can't shy away from the reality uh, of the world that we find ourselves in. Can we think of a happier thing to sort of end on to, to lift up our listeners? It's a happy thing that we can talk about. Are you um, enjoying the KBO? Are you getting to watch any KBO action? Um, it's more of like a in the background type situation. Yeah. But uh, actually, can so the smoking gun? Yeah. You know, I don't. I don't often inject, you know, my former lawyer life into this because I've mostly chosen to leave it behind and be happy. Yeah. <laughs> but like, so this this email. Give our listeners, for our listeners who don't know what you're talking about, give them a, a little, a brief overview of what, what it is you're referring to. Okay. So in this March deal, there's lots of talk about what, you know, the discussions about economic feasibility regarding neutral side or fanless games and whether or not the, there need, would need to be some renegotiation. And there are claims that there's, well, that there's an email out there that is an internal MLB email between two MLB employees summarizing a phone conversation with someone at the MLB PA that's sort of saying that they were asked, hey, what do you think economic feasibility means? And then the MLB people said, well, it means that uh, if uh, there's there's fanless games, then we're going to have to ask for, for player salary reductions. And then the MLBPA guy was, okay, I thought that's what you meant. I don't know whether this conversation happened, but I know that the, the people involved here are lawyers. Mm-hmm. And like the, the first thing that you would do if this conversation actually happened is you would write up an email and you would send it to the other side saying, confirming our conversation of today, X, Y, Z. That's what the email would be. And it's weird that this isn't what that email is. It just, I don't know that whether the conversation happened or not. And there's also some, some debate about, I, yes, I think, I guess that that's what I thought you meant even means anything, but it's really weird to have this email be the one that, that that comes out when in a normal situation, this would not be taken as very credible evidence, I would say. Yeah. But I think one thing, like on a happier note, I would say that like it feels like we're just really in this deep right now and there's like a public fight and everything's ugly. I think that you know, 
there's still a really good chance that that this all gets worked out and then we all forget about it and you know everybody just goes back to playing baseball and there's you know maybe a weird season and a weird postseason that has just you know some great fun moments because you know i i don't want to spend weeks writing about the labor situation you know it's something that you know it can be enjoyable and it's interesting and you know it's 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 compelling to like you know get analyze it but at the same time i would rather be watching baseball and i think that there's still that real possibility that we will have major league baseball at some point you know relatively soon well that is a terrific optimistic note to end on and i i think that we will have a season this year and i hope that you know i hope that the economics aren't what hold it back if player safety or like the safety of the people in the broader baseball ecosystem ends up being what sort of puts the kibosh on it that I could live with because I think that has to be prioritized. But if money gets in the way, that's going to feel really silly. It's just going to feel like such a missed opportunity because I do think that, you know, again, the safety stuff needs to be what wins out. But I think that the return of the game will have a really positive impact on a lot of people and not just people like you and me who depend on it existing for our chosen professions to sort of move forward. I think that you can believe in sort of the emotional lift of baseball without it being a cynical money-driven thing. So we will end assuming that it is not because that's that's a good assumption to have because everything is fun. Baseball's fun. I miss it. I just watched Game Six of the 2011 World Series. That's another happy note. Game Six, 2011 World Series, was on TV the other night, and I watched yeah. it like all the way through, start yep. to finish, just like yep. it was a you know, just like a regular game. Yeah, it was, it was fun. I watched, I watched that also. That aired on ESPN, I guess. Yep. The same day that Ben Clemens had sort of published another installment in his World Series Tactics series, uh, where he covered, you know, the 2011 uh, World Series, and I had forgotten. This is a very small thing that might only be amusing to me, but I love it when pitchers get on base and run for themselves and wear the jacket. I love it. I love it. It's one of my favorite small things about baseball because they The shinier, can, the better. They can throw 100 miles an hour, some of them, not Derek Holland at that time, but 100 miles an hour, but they have to stay warm. And so they have to put a big jacket on and admit the, the frailty of the human condition. And Derek Holland ran for himself and scored a run wearing the jacket. And I was just like, God, I miss baseball so goddamn much. <laughs> So yeah, so that's a happy thing. I mean, not for the Rangers fans who listen to this podcast. Sorry, friends. But yeah, that's a happy thing. Well, Craig, we will have you back on again soon, hopefully to be able to discuss something at least less serious than uh, than the labor situation, but hopefully more fun. And uh, thanks for joining me today. Thank you.